Welcome to the Florida Roundup. Thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. And I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. Well, it's an increasingly urgent question for Florida homeowners and policymakers fixing the state's troubled property insurance market. And they're going to try again this month to do it with a second special session to tackle property insurance issues scheduled for December 12th through the 16th. Yeah, coming up soon, Matthew. The issue is once again front and center after the devastation caused by Hurricane Ian in September. Also, Nicole. New Florida House Speaker Paul Renner has called this a big priority. He says he's aiming to get systemic reform to shore up the private market in Florida and steer policyholders away from the state-run Citizens Property Insurance Corporation. But lawmakers will have a lot to sort through as the already chaotic Florida property insurance market surged this year, leaving many homeowners to scramble for protection and worried about skyrocketing costs. Well, if you are one of those homeowners who has a little concern about your insurance or maybe you've been through one of these recent upheavals, uh, give us a call. We want to hear from you, 305-995-1800. Or if you just have questions about what the special session might yield, that number again, 305-995-1800. Send us a tweet. We are at Florida Roundup. Lots of homeowners out there have seen their rates go up or they've been dropped altogether having to scramble for another policy. So what can we expect? Well, we're pleased to welcome to the show Mark Friedlander, spokesperson for the Insurance Information Institute. Hi, Mark. Good afternoon. Thanks so much for having me today, Melissa. Great to have you. Also with us, Mary Ellen Kloss, State Capital Bureau Chief for the Miami Herald. Hey, Mary Ellen. Hi, good to be here. Again, 305-995-1800. In a moment, we'll get some amazing expertise on the industry from Mark. But first, Mary Ellen, this is the second crack the state legislature is making at this. Take us back to what happened a few months ago when they tried to tackle property insurance reform and what came out of that. Well, the legislature uh, finished their regular session uh, earlier this year in March, and they did not do much as it relates to property insurance. So they reconvened um, in a special session in May. And um, at that time, they really didn't do much in terms of structural reform. They basically found $12 billion in surplus tax dollars and put it into the reinsurance market for property insurance insurers. Um, And the reinsurance market is kind of like the insurance for insurance companies. Um, Essentially, when people have or when it's backup coverage for the insurance industry, when their losses reach certain thresholds. And so because that reinsurance was becoming harder to obtain and more expensive, um, the Florida legislature decided that they were going to try and make it more accessible. Now, since then, it really has not abated much of the problem. Um, Overall, reinsurance prices, according to Fitch Fitch Ratings, um, has gone up by 20, at least 10% in 2023. So um, the problem continues to be persistent. And that's why we'll likely be back uh, in a couple of weeks. In a couple of weeks. What can we expect out of this session? Will, for example, will taxpayers be on the hook to help provide some of this lower cost reinsurance for these major carriers? Well, the early word from legislative leadership and the governor is that, yes, indeed, we're going to be using the um, state's, you know, budget budget reserves to, again, put more money into the reins- reinsurance market. Now, um, House Speaker Paul Renner, as you had mentioned, has made a reference to the fact that accompanying that, what he considers a temporary fix, uh, he wants to see a more permanent fix. And um, what, how that, what that looks like is anybody's guess. Um, the legislature still has not formally issued a call for the special session. When they issue the call, they will indicate what the scope of the, of the session will look like. But my senses, because we don't have that information yet, they are still working out what they want to do. 
Um, mm -hmm. They're here for a short time. That means they they usually want to have it all worked out before they start. Um, and I think it's it's still unknown exactly how they're going to work it out. Now, at the same time, Marianne, there have been whispers that the lawmakers could also include another measure tacked into this special session, one that would further limit abortion access in Florida. What do we know about that? Well, um, you know, I think it's an interesting argument, but we have persistently saw some pushback from legislator from legislative leadership and the governor when that issue is raised. Um, I I think it would be very unlikely that they'll put it put an issue that controversial that is going to need a lot of airing out and um, and testimony and you know the House and Senate are not in agreement right now about where they want to go on abortion additional abortion restrictions. And um, the governor has repeatedly said he also wants to hold off to see what the Florida Supreme Court does with the challenge to the 15-week abortion ban. So I think it's very unlikely we're going to see um, anything relating to that issue until the, the regular session in March. 305-995-1800 is the number to call. Talking about the upcoming special session uh, in the works for lawmakers where they Come back to Tallahassee and try and have another go at fixing the state's troubled property insurance market and maybe some other things as well. Speaking with Mary Ellen Class of the Miami Herald, let's welcome into this conversation Mark Friedlander with the Insurance Information Institute. Mark, you estimated earlier this year that Hurricane Ian is the second largest US catastrophe on record with an insured loss of some $60 billion. That's $60 billion with a B. There's no quick fix to Florida's insurance market, but what actions? What are the actions that state lawmakers can actually do to try and stabilize things and make insurance more affordable for homeowners? From an insurance industry perspective, there are two main issues that need to be addressed. Litigation abuse and roof claim abuse. Those are the primary drivers of Florida's homeowners insurance crisis and why Florida residents are paying the highest average premium in the country at $4,231, which is nearly three times the U.S. average of $1,544. Is, is that it though? I mean, or are there some other factors at play? I mean, Florida is uniquely prone to hurricanes as Ian demonstrated. I mean, because there are, you know, amongst the frivolous lawsuits that uh, property insurers are worried about, there are people who have genuine uh, desire to, you know, make a claim and maybe are being rejected. So what do you say about those? There are always going to be disagreements about claim decisions. But the issue is Florida is not alone in that category. We see that across the country, yet we see the massive volume of lawsuits being filed in Florida. Our estimate was 116,000 lawsuits were filed just in 2021 alone. That's more than 80% of the U.S. total. It's way out of proportion. Typically, you'd see lawsuits on par with how many claims are filed. And in Florida, you typically get about 8% of the U.S. homeowners property claims filed in Florida. So to have 8% claims versus 80 or 81% litigation, there's a major problem here. Okay, so getting down to brass tacks, what do lawmakers need to do to, to put a stop to that? Well, the insurance industry for many years has been pushing lawmakers to pass a bill to rescind the one-way attorney fee statute. What that is, is in particularly in third-party lawsuits where we see the biggest problems uh, in, at play here, the plaintiff's attorneys are awarded all of the fees on behalf of the party that filed the suit, which in many cases is a third party because a homeowner has assigned their claim mm -hmm. over via assignment of benefits. That is being abused quite heavily here in Florida, and there are much stronger regulations in other states, and that's why we have such a large proportion of the litigation here in the state. Were you expecting lawmakers to get some of that done last time around and maybe disappointed that didn't? It's been brought up many times, and the provision is always killed. It never makes it to final vote. And I know, building on what Mary Ellen said, 
there are serious negotiations going on right now. The leaders of the House and Senate have not come to agreement, at least as of this morning, in terms of what should be uh, considered in this special session coming up in just literally 10 days. Uh, mm -hmm. The other issue is citizens. Citizens insurance is growing at an extremely and healthy rate. As we know, it's the state-run property insurer of last resort. And even yesterday, in an appearance down in South Florida, Governor DeSantis says citizens is going to go bust if reform is not brought forth on the what we consider the most volatile homeowners mm -hmm. insurance market in the country. While that was a very strong statement. Technically, citizens will never go bust because what happens is if citizens depletes all its reserves, every consumer in Florida will help pay for that with surcharges on our insurance bills. Right. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but weren't there more uh, clients or customers on citizens in, in re recent years or previous years anyway? I mean, it's, there aren't, although a lot have been moved to citizens' property insurance, it's not the highest uh, number that, that, it's, that it's been, right? Well, not the highest on record, but the highest in a decade. They are on pace to be at 1.2 million policyholders by the end of this year. Their all-time high was, I believe, about 1.5 million, and they are going to get there in a few months because right now they're growing at about, according to our analysis, about 75,000 new customers a month. That's an extreme rate. And in fact, they've become not only the largest property insurer in the state, but they are more than 50% larger in terms of number of customers compared to any private insurer. That's a very unhealthy balance. Yeah, that seems... A lot of questions and calls coming in. Yeah, that doesn't seem sustainable to me. <laughs> Just my uh, my uninformed opinion on this, but let's hear from some people all no. over all over Florida. It's three. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Let me just jump in real quick. It's not sustainable. And one of the big reasons is they are rate restricted. They can uh -huh. only charge whatever the regulator allows. They cannot charge what private insurers are charging for risk. That's a real big problem as well. Let us know your thoughts. Uh, let us know about your concerns about your insurance bill, Florida. 305-995-1800. Do you think lawmakers can fix this? They're going to try. Barbara is holding in Hollywood. Hi, Barbara. Go ahead. Hi. How are you? All right. Thanks for taking my call. I'm on a fixed income. I'm retired, and I'm with Citizens since State Farm dropped me. My insurance went up 50%, $2,500 in a year, which resulted in a $2,500 escrow shortfall, which I had to cash out a plan to pay for. What is my recourse? Yeah, Barbara, that is the problem. You and so many folks out there just like you who are looking to the state for some leadership on this. And it's a serious economic pain point for a lot of people. Mary Ellen Kloss, uh, I would think there's a, a growing amount of pressure on lawmakers to deliver some relief to people like Barbara. Yeah, I think you're I think you're absolutely right. It's fascinating because there have been voices who have been raising this issue for a long time. Um, and the legislature has really punted. Um, uh, Jeff Brandis, a state senator in Pinellas, who's now uh, retired, um, used to make the point that we need more aggressive reforms and more aggressive attention to the, this market because it will become unsustainably expensive for most homeowners like Barbara, um, they haven't done anything. And, you know, while I, I agree with Mark that these numbers as it relates to lawsuits are really off the charts, there are other areas that um, we never hear the insurance industry talk about. And we also don't hear uh, Republicans in the House or Senate or or even Jimmy Petronas, who's, who oversees this, talk about. And those are issues relating to why is it that other states when they regulate their insurance industry um, and there are complaints against them, they do impose restrictions and, um, you know, are, are, are a little bit more aggressive than what Florida has done. I think there is some internal inspection of how well-regulated Florida's insurance industry is 
that also needs to go hand in hand with some of the um, reforms that that cut um, cut loose some of these costs to the industry, like um, you know, out of control uh, attorneys' fees and that kind of thing. Uh, we it seems to be almost one-sided conversation at this point, and um, and I'll be interested to see if anybody, if any legislators who are who are really interested in curbing the costs start looking at are the is the insurance industry spending their money as wisely and attending to customers as well as they should mm. can i can i build on that real quick yeah yeah, yeah. Let me, go for it what, build what on, that. on that yeah uh, not disagreeing with mary ellen and all but I, we just go with the facts we're not a regulatory body we're not a uh, political organization. We don't lobby. So we look at it more objectively. And all I could tell you is six companies went insolvent in Florida this year because of litigation expenses. These six companies, each of those six had more litigation filed against them than what we saw in the second largest litigation state, which is California. And California had about 3,900 lawsuits last year. So each of these six companies had more than that volume against their organization. Those expenses to defend that litigation put those companies out of business. It's also the reason why 27 companies are on the insurance regulators watch list because of these heavy expenses. And now we're projecting Hurricane Ian will generate 10 to 20 billion dollars in litigation costs so of the 60 billion dollar total loss that we have projected one third of that could be litigation related and that will put more smaller florida domiciled insurers out of business hmm. okay um troubling times ahead it seems so let's uh, take another call here mark in jacksonville mark you're on the air Hi, good morning. I was just wondering if your uh, panelists can speak to why it seems that conservatives in Tallahassee have two different stances when it comes to bailout. So they're fine on one hand with the bailout to insurance companies through reinsurance, but yet every other individual, quote unquote, individual bailout, like student loan forgiveness, they're against. Why is hmm. that? Uh, good question. Thanks for weighing in on that, Mark. Uh, Mary Ellen, class, what are your thoughts on that? What, what some perspective on on maybe a, the different standards there well i i think that i you know i don't really have a good answer to that um all i can tell you is that um jeff brandis as who i mentioned earlier actually tweeted yesterday that things have have pushed these lawmakers to the wall so far that we're going to see them do things that they never would have thought to do and and I think that's where the bailout issues come. We heard, um, I've, heard I've spoken to Speaker Renner, the House Speaker, who has indicated that that's part of his thinking is like, this is not something I, as a conservative Republican, I want to do, but we really don't see too many other options. We've been speaking uh, with Mary Ellen Klaas, Miami, uh, sorry, Tallahassee, rather, Bureau Chief for the Miami Herald. Uh, Mary, thank you so much. Good to be here. Thanks. And also with us uh, this hour, Mark Freelander with the Insurance Information Institute. Mark, thanks so much for your insights as well. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you both. And still to come, Governor DeSantis is sued in federal court after he fired a prosecutor who supports abortion rights. That's next here on the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio.
Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. And I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. Well, secrecy, strategy, and spin. A new report says they were all part of Governor Ron DeSantis' decision to suspend a Florida prosecutor who had promised to protect abortion rights. Records show that the Republican governor's office had been quietly targeting Hillsborough County State Attorney Andrew Warren for months, trying to build a case to take down an outspoken prosecutor who was becoming one of the highest profile elected Democrats in Florida. They decided Warren's abortion pledge gave them the ammunition they needed. But what they apparently didn't account for was Warren's reaction to his firing. Warren has sued the governor in federal court on First Amendment grounds. In the complaint, he accused DeSantis of unconstitutionally punishing a critic and a potential political rival who was exercising his right to free speech. Here's Warren in a statement he posted on Twitter at the start of the trial. As I've said from the beginning, there's so much more at stake than my job. We're not just fighting to do the job that I was elected to do. I'm fighting for the rights of voters across Florida to have the elected official of their choice. We're fighting for free speech for the integrity of our elections, and for the very values of our democracy. So what's at stake in this lawsuit? And what are your questions? Give us a call wherever you are around the state, 305-995-1800 to join us, or tweet us at Florida Roundup. Well, joining the conversation now, Jason Garcia. He's an investigative reporter covering corporate influence and the publisher of Seeking Rents on Substack. Jason, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. We're also joined by Dara Cam, senior writer with the News Service of Florida. She's been covering the trial. Dara, thanks so much as well. I'm happy to be here. Well, Dara, I want to start with you. Bring us up to speed on the trial. What arguments did you hear from each side, and, and when is the judge going to make a ruling? Well, the judge said that uh, the trial ended yesterday. Uh, it lasted Tuesday through Thursday. Andrew Warren testified on the opening day of the trial. The judge said that it would take him a couple of weeks to come up with his ruling. He did not rule from the bench. Yesterday, he said that he might not get a ruling out until December 19th. Mm -hmm. um, the, the state's arguments focused largely on their position that Andrew Warren was had openly declared that he was not going to follow the state law and that that by doing so that he was effectively he was effectively issuing his own veto of the of the statutes the the most contentious issue was his signing on to a statement that dozens of prosecutors around the country issued um, saying that they he would not enforce uh, criminal sanctions against physicians and patients who defy Florida's new 15-week ban on abortion mm -hmm. um, or restriction on abortion. So that that was the the state's argument, you already in your introduction summed up what Andrew Warren's position is, and that is that this is his right to free speech and that he didn't actually commit any criminal act or do anything wrong. He didn't violate any state statutes. Hmm. And did Andrew Warren talk much about whether he would actually you know, follow the letter of the law as the DeSantis administration said that basically they were saying he wasn't going to do that? But what did, what did Warren have to say about that aspect of it. He repeatedly demonstrated that his approach was to view every case on its own merits to do an, and that prosecutors have prosecutorial discretion over which, which cases they want to pursue and how they want to spend their resources. So his he was very clear and tried to show through evidence that in many memos and in his training for his his assistant uh, state attorneys that they would they would use their discretion and that they would evaluate each case independently. And again, hmm. they stressed that there never had been any criminal 
abortion related cases um, were ever sent. No, no charges of, of that kind were ever sent to his office. During the trial this week, lawyers for Warren asked DeSantis's public safety czar, Larry Keefe, if he'd talked to police or other law enforcement about Warren before he was suspended. What do we hear about the role of law enforcement officials in DeSantis's efforts to remove Warren? Well, Larry Keefe was really the star of the show this week. Um, he's a former U.S. prosecutor here in North Florida. Uh, he was appointed by then-President Donald Trump. And Larry Keefe had a brief conversation with Governor DeSantis in December, where the governor asked him if there were any state attorneys who weren't following the law. And Larry Keefe picked up the phone, according to his testimony, uh, and he called law enforcement officials around the state. And there seemed to be a consensus among Republican, almost exclusively Republican sheriffs and police chiefs that Warren was a threat to society, was, uh, you know, if if he were allowed to continue and this were allowed to spread, it would result in chaos and anarchy. It, his, his testimony was quite colorful and, um, and the judge several times, Judge Robert Hinkle was presiding over the case. The judge asked him if he had spoken to any anyone who wasn't a Republican in his investigation, Larry Keefe repeatedly said that this was not an investigation, that it was a look into. And uh, and the judge said, well, you know, as a former prosecutor, would you have only looked into one side of a case? And, and, and Larry Keefe, of course, said, no, he wouldn't. So it seems as though there was a maybe a whisper campaign or there there Andrew Warren, we should remind listeners, was a criminal justice reform advocate. And he in, initiated some policies that probably rubbed law enforcement officials the wrong way. Right. We heard a little bit from uh, Andrew Warren, that uh, statement he gave to reporters and then posted on Twitter as well at the start of this. But just remind us, Dara, what's at stake in this trial? There's quite a lot of interest in it beyond Florida. So what's at stake beyond Warren just getting his job back? Well, really what's at stake is how far, how much authority does the governor have to strip a twice elected constitutional officer from his elected post because you know for when he hasn't committed a crime that's really to me that is the crux of the issue is how much power does the governor have and we've seen this governor exercise his authority in ways that are many people believe to be an over uh extension of his true authority but in and the governor does have the authority to remove or to suspend a, an officer from from office but in typically these are people who have been arrested for crimes or have committed some kind of wrongdoing and the the concern is i guess what's at stake is does the governor have the political power and the legal authority to remove someone who he does he disagrees with? Three zero five nine nine five eighteen hundred. Adam in Miami Beach. Hi, Adam. Go ahead. Hey. Good afternoon. Um, uh, my question is about the legal basis um, that the that the attorney has to oppose these laws. And I was curious because I haven't heard a lot of discussion about the fact that although the Supreme Court for the United States struck down Roe v. Wade, the Florida Constitution actually has a very robust right to privacy, which has been interpreted by the Florida Supreme Court to protect a woman's right to choose. Is the is that a basis uh, that was invoked or that could be relied upon by the attorney general to oppose bans that would arguably be in conflict with Florida state law? Thank you for that question, Adam. Let's get into it a little bit further. 
as we bring Jason Garcia into the conversation. Jason, you have looked at all of the public records around this decision that DeSantis and his team made to fire Warren. And again, he he was an independently elected prosecutor in Tampa. His offense was he pledged not to prosecute women seeking abortions. Abortions are still legal in this state up to 15 weeks of pregnancy. What did the records show you about how this decision was taken? Yeah, it's really interesting. What, what they show is that the governor's office had uh, been targeting Warren for months, looking for a reason to suspend him. As, as Dara mentioned, all of this traced back to uh, to a meeting in December when the governor, meeting with a couple of uh, his top aides, apparently unprompted, asked, uh, hey, whether are there any state attorneys in the state not uh, not enforcing the law? And we know from other records that he'd been um, pushing a bill that ultimately didn't pass to give himself more power to explicitly suspend state attorneys. So it's pretty clear they, he was looking to pick a fight with a progressive prosecutor, right, as a, as a way to just sort of have that battle, which he, he knew would draw a lot of attention. And the records, the records show they, they had uh, a big idea of just how much attention this would draw. But the problem they ran into is, is they couldn't find a strong enough reason to suspend him. The, the Florida Constitution gives the governor sort of broad power to suspend state attorneys and other local elected officials for neglect of duty or incompetence. But those those terms aren't really well defined beyond that. And they knew whatever they did would get challenged legally. So they they built up a list of policies and cases that that Warren had declined to prosecute or had instituted in his office they didn't like. But no one sort of felt that it was it was strong enough to justify suspending until he issued this statement in abortion where he said he would not support the criminalization of women seeking abortions or doctors providing them. And once they had that, they took the opinion, they, they took the, they decided that was what gave them the ammunition they needed. They said, they, they looked at that and they said, we can say he is refusing in advance to enforce the law. And that's what they use for the basis. But, but we know they had been looking for months for a reason to do it. They just, the abortion statement finally gave them something they thought they could, they could hang a case on. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. A tweet from a listener, DeSantis used his position to target a twice-elected political opponent, essentially stealing the votes of the people of Hillsborough County. These autocratic tendencies are the opposite of being free. DeSantis is a danger to Florida and beyond, says one listener. Jason, what about this? Abortion is still legal in Florida. So uh, talk us through this. Uh, The governor has taken really, frankly, bipartisan criticism over this move, uh, removing an independently elected official from office who had he had not gone against state law. He had simply issued a statement. He hadn't actually declined to prosecute anyone who uh, might have broken Florida statutes. And, And again, as a previous caller pointed out, abortion rights are enshrined in the Florida Constitution as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so the the statement said they would not support the the criminalization or prosecuting women seeking abortions or doctors providing them. And abortion is legal in Florida, although there are restrictions on abortion. And this is where the this is sort of the rub of the case, right? The the most restrictive of those is the 15 week abortion ban, um, with no exceptions for rape, incest, or victims of human tra- trafficking. So you could read uh, Andrew Warren's statement to say to, to you could read it as him saying, "I will not prosecute." A doctor who performs a, a, an abortion for a rape victim in her 16 week, 16th week of pregnancy. The problem is he hasn't actually done that, right? It is just a statement right now. And in fact, in court filings, the state attorney's office has said they have never once been presented with a case uh, recommending re- referring abortion-related criminal charges. So they have never done it. This all comes down to sort of can you suspend someone for prospectively staying something? And, and the, the other issue you run into that is it's just a statement. It is not an official policy. And, and Derek can talk more about this in the trial, but there's been a lot of pointing out of that, that attorneys in, there were attorneys in Warren's office who didn't even know he'd issued this statement. So to say it was the policy of his offices um, is really a stretch. Now, his lawsuit at the federal level seemed to catch the DeSantis administration by surprise and it brought more information to light through your public records requests about the inner workings of this governor's staff that might normally be difficult for journalists to get a hold of. So what stands out for you about how this removal was carried out? What else should we know about this? 
Yeah, so a few things that really stuck out, and, and these are all records. This is a governor's office that is notoriously slow to comply with public records requests, but because of this litigation, they were compelled to turn over just a giant cache of documents. Um, one of the things we learned is that uh, many of the governor's top aides are using their private emails to discuss personal visits. The general counsel of the governor's office, the top lawyer on Ron DeSantis' staff, was using his AOL email address to communicate with folks about this. So it was, um, there was mention earlier of Larry uh, Keefe, the governor's public safety czar, who did the, the quote, look into uh, state attorneys around the state. He was instructing people to send stuff to his Gmail address. We also got a sense of just how much politics played a role in, in why they were targeting Warren and why they wanted to remove him. Uh, a staffer, um, someone on the legal department staff in the governor's office prepared a document as part of this, looking at the various options they could take with Andrew Warren. They could it looked at options like we could suspend him outright. We could issue him a warning to retract the abortion statement or we could do nothing. And then went through essentially a list of pros and cons of each of those each of those options. And under uh, suspending him. One of the pros they listed was we would remove a leftist prosecutor from a position of power. And, and one of the cons they listed was it might raise Andrew Warren's profile even more because of the fight. So this was politics and sort of the, the ability to, to generate headlines out of this were a huge factor here. One other thing that was really interesting that came out of this is two weeks after, after this happened, so this, this has gotten a ton of attention, another staffer in the governor's office sent around a report where they, they calculated that they'd earned themselves more than $2 million in free publicity from news media coverage of this. Mm. Uh, it, I guess it could cut both ways. It could, uh, uh, depending on the ruling, it could further bolster the governor with conservative voters, or it could uh, make Andrew Warren a national figure if he's victorious. Yeah, it could, it could do both things. And that's, that's why they were looking at the, as a con of this and as, raising Andrew Warren's profile. They knew it would raise the governor's profile, particularly within within conservative media. I mean, even before the statement went out, the, these records show that the governor's press staff was coordinating an interview with uh, Tucker Warren for that night to discuss it. Tucker Carlson, yeah. a yeah. huge hit with conservative Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Well, uh, great, great reporting from you both. Jason Garcia, publisher of Seeking Rents. Dara Cam, senior writer with the New Service of Florida. We'll look forward to the next development on this. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. And when we come back, is it time to retire that hurricane term cone of uncertainty? Some researchers say yes. That's next when the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio returns. back to the Florida Roundup. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. And I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. Well, 20 years ago, the National Hurricane Center debuted what it called the Cone of Uncertainty. The graphic shows the most likely path an approaching storm is expected to take, but each year there's renewed debate over the cone and how it's interpreted. And with the 2022 hurricane season in the books, and with the cleanup still ongoing after the devastation of Hurricane Ian, is it time for an update to the cone? 
Well, that's uh, the question researchers from the University of Miami are asking. They surveyed Florida residents about their understanding of the cone of concern or the cone of uncertainty, that term. And they found many people misinterpret aspects of the graphic you always see on the news during storm season. Things like the size of the storm, areas of likely damage, and watches and warnings. The researchers are working now with the National Hurricane Center to improve the cone and develop new graphics that can do a better job of communicating the potential impacts of the storm. Let's welcome Robert Eicher, Assistant Professor of Meteorology at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University and a freelance certified broadcast meteorologist. Hey, Robert. Good afternoon, guys. Thanks for having me on. Sure thing. So what's the biggest misconception people have about the cone of uncertainty? Probably, as you said, that most people think that the cone or a lot of people think that the cone represents the areas that are going to be damaged or uh, areas that uh, are are under concern, as you pointed out. So cone of concern is a particularly bad name for it. Interesting. So we should retire that then. Uh, and it's 305-995-1800. So what did Hurricane Ian tell us about how the cone has improved in, as a communication tool over the last two decades? Well, I think what Ian showed us is that it's really time to think outside of the cone. Um, and I wish I could take credit for uh, coining that phrase, but that was actually one of your colleagues. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, what Ian really kind of proved is that quite often there is significant damage well away from where the center of the storm actually makes landfall. And that is one of the misconceptions about the cone the cone only shows you where the center is likely to make landfall it doesn't show you where the storm greatest storm surge is going to be or where the heaviest rainfall is going to be or where the greatest wind damage is going to be and quite often those things are well away from the center and ian proved that wow well you know people process hurricanes visually they're glued to the news to the weather channel or their local news they're always wanting to see where's the cone, where, you know, which way is it going to go? Am I inside the cone? Am I outside the cone? If we're not going to use the cone or if it's not a reliable tool, what would be a, a good alternative to that? The I don't think the cone will ever completely go away. The the Hurricane Center knows that that's, you know, basically iconic. Um, they are open to changing it, making changes to it. As you pointed out, there's already research uh, research involved in that. Um, what I'm working on is with them uh, some new products, and I think that's what we're going to see is some focus on some other products uh, that help explain the damage beyond the cone. So they already added a couple of years ago a storm surge warning uh, product, uh, and the entire southwest coast of Florida was under a storm surge warning two days before it actually made landfall. So regardless of where we thought it was going to make landfall, we knew two days in advance that the storm surge was going to be uh, destructive uh, along that entire portion of the Florida coastline. And that was when we thought it was heading towards the Big Bend area. So they've already added storm surge products. Uh, what I'm working on them with is kind of a, a worst case scenario uh, graphic. So a graphic that will help explain what the most reasonable landfall intensity would be, but also what the worst reasonable worst case scenario. So in other words, uh, we think it'll probably be a cat one minute makes landfall, but there's a 30% chance it'll be as strong as a cat four. So yeah. the idea there is hopefully people will prepare for the worst case. And is it important to have meteorologists, particularly on television, uh, adapt to some of these changes and new tools that you think could do a better job of educating all of us? Absolutely. Um, th that's part of my role in this. I was a former broadcast meteorologist is trying to figure out how those products would look on TV, how broadcast meteorologists would use them, uh, and how best to communicate them in, in ways that the public often turns to in hurricane warning situations. 305-995-1800 is the number. Your thoughts on the cone of uncertainty, or is it sometimes referred to, perhaps mistakenly, the cone of concern? Is it time to update that, as researchers say? How useful is that tool, and how has it guided your response to hurricanes like Hurricane Ian or other hurricanes to hit the Sunshine State in the past? We're talking with Robert Eicher. Assistant Professor of Meteorology at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University and freelance certified broadcast meteorologist. Uh, Robert, what other graphics do you think 
people should be paying attention to. You mentioned the um, storm surge warnings. People obviously, uh, in the aftermath of Ian, were thinking a lot more about those and and um, you know how how they worked, uh, the 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 widespread nature of them. What else do you think people need to be kind of having on their radar when it comes to graphics? They need to have front of mind uh, in a, an approaching storm. You hit the nail on the head when you said radar. Uh, is precipitation graphics? That's what that's what you need to be focused on. The one of the other products that unfortunately doesn't actually come directly from the National Hurricane Center it comes from another branch of the Weather Service, the Weather Prediction Center. Um, but they actually produce a uh, precipitation forecast for hurricanes, for not just hurricanes, but all sorts of major weather events. Um, and if you looked at that graphic, even days before, five days before. Ian made landfall, you knew the entire state of Florida was going to get drenched with flooding rainfall. And that's a graphic that doesn't get a whole lot of attention uh, and should. And that's what kind of what I was telling my students when they're asking me, where do you think this thing is going to go? Where do you think it's going to go? And I said, wherever it goes, we're looking at 10, 12, up to two feet of rain, 10 to 12 inches up to two feet of rain in our area. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Um, social media, too, has become a big part of hurricane coverage and a tool for emergency managers to get information out in a hurry. I wonder, though, Robert, how do you make sure this information is reliable, and especially now when the guardrails around misinformation on platforms like Twitter seem even more shaky? Oh, man, <laughs> that, that is a, a big headache for forecasters is that uh, quite often, you know, fake messages get more attention and research has showed that fake messages often get more attention than than the real messages or the true messages. Uh, and that's the case, whether you're talking about, as you know, weather or news. Um, and that that is a big concern. I, I know that the National Weather Association and the American Meteorological Society have have some certifications. Uh, AMS actually has American Meteorological Society. She has a new one coming out. Uh, that are kind of designed to help address that. So you can look for like the the little seal of approval on the on Facebook or Twitter or on social media, and you know, okay, this is a real meteorologist. This is someone mm. who actually knows what they're talking about. Um, but yeah, that is a headache that we are still trying to figure out how to address. How to address Raphael in Miami? Go ahead, Raphael. Uh, yes. Hi. Um, so, on re regarding the Ian storm that just happened. Uh, towards the beginning, I know they start giving out projections, you know, five to seven days out before the storm actually hits. Uh, at the beginning, Ian was projected to go uh, through southwest Florida. Uh, throughout those five to seven days, it went as far north as Tallahassee and then slowly started to come back down. So my main criticism is, uh, and I don't know if it's a fact of how far ahead they start giving out projections, is uh, you know the the range uh, that 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 cone uh, spans, uh, and you know Ian is a perfect example from the southwest coast all the way up to Tallahassee, and it's it's and from my point of view, it's it's too inaccurate, um, and and I don't know if the way to fix it is is to reduce the the time that they project the storm, or or I'm not sure. Yeah. I think that's what they're trying to figure out too, Raphael. Thank you for that, Robert. Yeah, I I think part of the problem is Raphael highlighted there is that people focus on the center. And yes, if you looked at the center of the cone, the center line, it did shift from the southwest to all the way up towards Tallahassee. But the Fort Myers area was always in some portion of the cone from day one, going back to the very first forecast that was issued on Friday. Uh, so you need to kind of not focus on the center line, that center point of the cone. You need to look at the whole thing because it's likely to go somewhere in that cone. May not be the center, but somewhere in that cone. Um, and that is usually two-thirds of the time. That's what happens. On Twitter, Terry says, until the accuracy of forecasts improve, how can the accuracy of the cone be improved? Worst case scenarios will only cause distrust of the forecast when an area is spared. Now, of course, this is an inexact science, Robert. Uh, meteorologists do their best, but what about that? With the track forecasts have actually improved significantly in getting back to the, the point about, you know, a three-day versus a five-day forecast. Uh, a five-day forecast is now more accurate than a three-day forecast was 20 years ago uh, in terms of the track, so where it's making landfall. 
Uh, where we still have challenges, admittedly, is the intensity forecast. So that that has been the problem. Uh, intensity forecasts have not gotten, admittedly, a whole lot better over the last 20 years. And that's part of why the Hurricane Center wants to switch to kind of a probability uh, forecast for, for hurricane wind speeds. Right. And of course, that's what uh, emergency managers have stressed time and time again. Don't focus on the track, focus on the potential impacts, but maybe just ways to communicate that message is what uh, they need to think about next. We've been speaking with Robert Iker, Assistant Professor of Meteorology at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University and freelance certified broadcast meteorologist about the plans to update the cone of concern or the cone of uncertainty that uh, gets rolled out every single hurricane season. Uh, Robert, thanks so much for your insights and uh, we look forward to seeing what comes out of the National Hurricane Centre and where the cone goes from here. My pleasure, and we miss you in Orlando, Matt. Well, you can still hear me on the radio. That's the good news. <laughs> yeah, all over the state. So uh, thank you, Robert, and thank you, Matthew. And that is our show. The Florida Roundup is produced by WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville and WLRN Public Media in Miami. Heather Schatz and Natu Choi are producers. WLRN's Vice President of Radio and our Technical Director is Peter Mertz. Engineering help from Doug Peterson, Charles Michaels, Isabella De Silva, and Craig George. Richard Ives answers the phones. Our theme music provided by Miami jazz guitarist Aaron Lebos at AaronLebos.com. I'm Matthew Petty. And I'm Melissa Ross. Thanks for listening, calling, and tweeting, and have a great weekend.